Joshua chapter 9 is where we are. Uh, Let me give you the background and then we're going to read all of chapter 9 because last time we were in chapter 9, I had to stop at a place that didn't really bring closure to the whole subject matter. So here's the background. I'm going to put up our little trusty map. Uh, This is Israel. The uh, people of Israel, the Israelites have now come into the promised land. They first took Jericho. After that, they took the town of Ai. And then they move up, chapter 8 tells us, to the places where the uh, two different mounts are located, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and the purpose was to renew the covenant in that place. This was a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 27. Moses had told them, when you get into the promised land, go to Mount Gerizim, go to Mount Ebal, and there read the commandments, and put half of the people on Mount Gerizim and half of the people on Mount Ebal, and as, as you read the commandments, read the blessings and the curses attached with the commandments, that if you obey the commandments, there will be blessings. And the people on Mount Gerizim were to uh, sound off what the blessings were. And then if you disobey the commandments, there will be curses. You will, you will incur uh, uh, difficulty in your own life. And so the people on Mount Ebal would read the curses attached to disobeying the commandments of God. And so Joshua is there between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and the town that is located there today is Shechem. Now, it is actually part of what is, in modern terms, called the West Bank. We call it Samaria and Judea. But as part of the West Bank, Shechem is today called uh, Nabulus, and it has a population of about 125,000 people. But this is that location where they renewed the covenant. Uh, They have defeated a couple of the towns, and now they are ready to possess the land of Israel. And the best thing to do at the beginning is to renew their covenant before God, promise to obey the commandments. And there they are reciting the commandments and the corresponding blessings and curses that go with it if you obey or disobey these commandments of God. So that's the location here. Now, as we come into chapter 9... I'm going to read it again, even though we read it last week, because uh, what we didn't get to is uh, two important lessons, main teaching points from chapter 9. So let me read all of it, and then we'll pray, and I'll tell you where we're going. So chapter 9 says this, And it came to pass, when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills, and in the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they garnered together, that rather that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Well, who are you and where do you come from? And so they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard, now notice their testimony, We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who was at Ashtoreth. 
And therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn. And these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. And then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. This is very important to the story. And so Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. They made an oath. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth, and Kirithim Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. And then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. And then Joshua called for them. And he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so they answered Joshua and said, Because... Your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now, here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. And so we did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now we're going to pray, but before we pray, here's the main two points from this chapter that we need to learn. Number one is the importance of hearing God. And number two is the importance of keeping your word. There are two things happening in this story. The first of which is... Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not inquire of the Lord. They sampled the provisions, the dry and moldy bread that these travelers had brought, but they did not inquire of the Lord. We need to learn from this story the proper way to hear from God. The second thing they did was they made a covenant. They made an oath with these guys. Even though they had been deceived, they made an oath and they had to keep their oath. So we're also going to talk about the importance of keeping your word. Both of those are related to this chapter, but let's first pause and pray. God, it is good to be in your house, and we just settle ourselves before you now to look into your word and to ask that you would speak to us about particularly these two things. Lord, how important it is that we hear from you, and how important it is that we be men and women of our word. And so, We pray that you would help us as we look into this chapter to learn, to grow, to make changes in our own lives where we need to. 
and that we would be more devoted and surrendered to you. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, we all know that um, God has given us five senses, and we typically rely on those five senses to evaluate our world and to make decisions and judgments. Um, But our five senses are not always reliable. The good news is that as Christians, as believers, we actually have a sixth sense. And that sixth sense is discernment, and we gain discernment from the Lord. Because not all things can be understood in the natural. Some things we need God's wisdom from above to be able to recognize and understand and to discern. And so this is where it is important for us, those of us who know the Lord, to particularly rely on this sixth sense. You can't always get things right just by what you see. Sometimes our eyes deceive us. What you hear, everything we hear isn't always true. That, that the sense of touch and taste and smell, all those things are given by God, but not always reliable. Now, there's a wonderful example of the unreliability of our five senses in the Bible. It's a tragic example, but nonetheless, it's a good one to learn from. It's in Genesis chapter 27. You don't need to turn. It's a familiar story to many of you. But for those of you who don't know the story, here it is. Isaac was married to Rebekah. They had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, normally, uh, in biblical times, the firstborn son received all the rights and privileges uh, as that firstborn. And in the case of Jacob and Esau, the firstborn was Esau, uh, just by a little bit, but he was the firstborn of the two twins. And when he came out, the Bible says he was literally hairy. I mean, hair covered him as a baby. So just, you know, not the prettiest sight, I'm sure. But nevertheless, what do you think Isaac and Rebekah named their hairy son? They named him Esau, which in Hebrew means hairy. I'm not making it up. So they named their kid Harry because he's hairy when he's born. Here comes Jacob, his brother, grasping at the heel of Esau on the way out of the womb. So he's called Yaakov, which means heel grasper. Now, figuratively, that means somebody who trips up another person. So his name also means deceiver. So Jacob was a deceiver. He was true to his name. And Esau was hairy, and he was true to his name because the Bible says he was a man of the field. He loved hunting. You know, if you look like an animal, run with them, right? Okay. So here's the deal. Normally, Esau would have gotten his father's blessing and would have gotten the privilege of taking over as the patriarch when dad died. You would get as the firstborn son twice the inheritance too. Well, what happened was Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau. Never good and shouldn't be the case where parents favor or love one kid over another. But this was the case. Uh, Isaac really preferred Esau. Rebecca preferred Jacob. And so when Isaac was old in years and unable to see, okay, now check that out. So one of his five senses had, depri- had uh, you know, declined and he couldn't rely on his sight. Rebecca, his wife, took advantage of this. She wanted Jacob to get the blessing, not Esau. Now, the fact of the matter is in the Bible, it was God's preference that actually Jacob should be the son of the inheritance. 
It was just God's providence that in that particular case, the Bible says the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. But that was God's choice. Rebecca didn't need to help God. How many of you have ever tried to help God out? Just admit it. Go ahead. You've tried to help God. It didn't go well, did it? Because God is big enough to take care of things on his own. Rebecca didn't have to help God, but she decides she's going to. So what she decides to do is, I got to make Jacob appear to be Esau. So when Jacob goes in to get dad's blessings, who is now blind, he's going to think it's Esau. How are we going to do this? Well, we're going to slap some goat hair on the back of Jacob's neck and all over his arms and hands so that when dad feels him, he thinks he's feeling Esau, otherwise known as goat boy, I guess. I don't know. Why would this be normal? But it was. Okay. So Rebecca says, come here, Jacob. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to deceive dad so you get the blessing. But I got to smear a bunch of goat hair all over you or he won't think that you're Esau. You're smooth skinned. You're kind of a mama's boy. You like sitting at home watching the food network and tying sweaters around your neck. We got to change that. And so she says to Jacob, I'm going to put a bunch of goat hair all over you. Jacob goes along with the whole plan. He goes into dad while Esau's out in the field, pretends to be Esau. What does Esau do? He uh, uh, rather, what does Isaac do? He relies on his senses. Now he doesn't have sight, but what he does is he says, come here, boy. And he starts to feel the hands of Jacob, which now have a bunch of goat hair on it. And so Isaac assumes, okay. And he says, listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 27. He says, you you sound, you have the voice of Jacob, but you have the hands of Esau. What's he relying on? He's relying on the sense of hearing. He's relying on the sense of touch. Then he says to Jacob, thinking it's Esau, come closer so that I might kiss you. And the Bible says in Genesis 27, he draws him near to smell him because Esau smells like wild game. That's what he hangs around. But when he smells him, he's smelling the, the, the goat hair that's been attached, but he's relying now on the sense of smell. He exercises everything except sight because he's blind and taste. So he's relying on hearing, touch, smell, and it all has deceived him. And he gives his blessing to Jacob thinking that it's really Esau. And Jacob receives the blessing that God intended anyway. But the whole plan was a manipulation and deception of Isaac based on his senses. What happens to us is we begin to seek God about things, but we rely a lot of times more so on our five senses than we do about God. So let me just uh, take us into this next story. Here's the two hills of Gerizim and Ebal with Shechem in the middle. When we talk about the importance of hearing God, how can we properly hear God? Because the problem here in Joshua chapter 9 was that the leaders of Israel, including Joshua himself, they sampled the provision. They tasted the moldy bread of these weary travelers. They took a look at all of how worn out their sandals were and their clothes were. They got a look at them. They got a taste of the bread, okay? But they didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, here was the issue at hand. The, the neighbors around uh, Israel, um, if they didn't turn to God, they were going to be judged by God. And when you look at the way chapter 9 begins, there were two approaches to the Israelites. It was either uh, hand-to-hand combat. Okay, that's the first part of chapter 9. Various kings got together and said, well, we, we've heard about these Israelites and God is with them. And instead of turning, okay, and surrendering to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they engage in hand-to-hand combat. We're going to fight them. That was their plan. We're going to fight them. 
The Gibeonites, however, resorted to a ruse, the NIV says. Okay? They hatched a plan to deceive the Israelites, to make them think that they were from a distant land. Because if you were from a distant land, they weren't going to attack you. You were safe. So they had to make this covenant under false pretenses to save their own skin. The Gibeonites come, they act like they're from a a distant land, they've got worn out clothing, moldy bread. The whole thing is for an Academy Award. They're, They're doing all of this just to deceive them. It's all an act. But rather than Joshua and the and the leaders of Israel inquiring of the Lord, that's verse 14, it says instead they took some of the provisions. They sampled things. They're relying on their senses, the natural senses. They're not relying on the sixth sense of seeking God. How do we hear from God? This is important for every single one of us because there are going to be plenty of decisions in your life that you need to discern the will of God concerning. And if you don't understand how to hear from God, you're going to end up just relying on your own senses, trying to evaluate this and evaluate that. And sometimes it works and a lot of times it doesn't. We need to really be able to hear from God. So here's the first thing. The first thing is the counsel of God's word is how we hear from God. The counsel of God's word. In Psalm 119, 105, the Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now notice that language. A light to my feet is something near. A light to my path is something distant. So God's word is helpful both in the near term and in the far term because the counsel of his word will help us to discern things relative to the immediate and relative to the future. A lamp to my feet, a light to my path. In Psalm 32 verse 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Well, that's what he does through his word. That's the counsel of his word. And remember, God said to Joshua back in Joshua 1.8, he said, meditate on my word day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, the Bible, the counsel of God's word, will give us direct or indirect counsel. Sometimes there's a passage that is very specific. That's direct counsel. And sometimes there's not a specific passage, but there's a principle in God's word. That's his indirect counsel. So he's going to speak to us through his word, both directly and indirectly, through passages and through principles. Here's what I mean. So you can begin to ask yourself certain questions, like by example, is it God's will for me to take this other Christian to court? Okay, you're going to sue the pants off this other person, but you know that they're a Christian. Well, actually, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that believers should not take other believers to court. So the answer to that would be no. You better arbitrate it and find another way to work it out, but you're not supposed to take them before an, er- an earthly judge. This is God's thing that he's going to work out between believers. And then you're going to ask yourself, for example, should I pay my taxes? Well, who really wants to pay taxes, right? Especially high taxes. But yet, in a sense, it is our civic duty, if nothing else, to fund the military. Is it right for us to pay taxes? Well, Romans 13 says yes. So there are some specific verses and passages that speak directly the counsel of God's word. But then what about other questions that you wrestle with that there aren't necessarily chapter and verse about. You know, should I, should I, should I move to Pittsburgh? 
Well, Pittsburgh's not in the Bible. I mean, do you really need a verse on that? Come on. Don't go to Pittsburgh. But anyway, but so, but so you're thinking, should I move, should I move to Pittsburgh? You know, well, Pittsburgh's not in the Bible. Should I do this? Should I do that? Well, it's not really in the Bible. Well, but, the, but there's principles in the Bible. You know, somebody, uh, actually two different people uh, on two different days gave me a big, big bag of popcorn. It's called Krispy Kreme popcorn. Have you seen this? I don't even know where they make it, but two different people, at, are the Johnsons here tonight? The Johnsons gave me one bag, and uh, another lady gave me another bag of this. I don't even know they manufactured it because, you know, once in a while I drop the name Krispy Kreme because it is manna from heaven. But apparently they've, they've come out with, with popcorn, listen to this, that is glazed with the Krispy Kreme glaze on it. So just before church, I was chowing down. I ate half the bag. Now, I can ask myself, is this really, should I be doing this? Well, in moderation, okay. But should I make an, a, a complete diet every day on Krispy Kreme popcorn? Probably not. Probably not, unless I want to go to heaven early. Well, how do I know? Probably not. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, so I should probably honor God a little bit and in moderation eat Krispy Kreme popcorn. In other words... There are some things you look at the Bible and you go, okay, there's not a verse about it, but there's a principle about it. And that is counsel for my life, both in the near term and in the distant term. The other thing that's important is, number two, the comfort of God's peace. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, rule in your heart. That word rule in the Hebrew is brabuo. And it, it translates, when you look at, at Vine's dictionary, it translates to act as an umpire. And generally it means to arbitrate or to decide. Let the peace of God act like a, an umpire in your life. Now, I, uh, I, I haven't done it since COVID, but I, for years, have uh, umpired high school baseball. And umpiring baseball is basically you're just making judgment calls constantly. What is the strike zone? Is it outside of the strike zone? This is, this is a strike. This is a ball. You're, you're looking at when, you know, a runner's foot hits that, hits the bag in relation to when you heard it in the mitt of, of the, of the first baseman or the third baseman or second baseman. You're making constant judgment calls, fair, foul line. That's what umpiring is. What the Bible is saying to us there in Colossians 3.15 is that the peace of God will serve to help you judge and make uh, judgment calls in your life. The peace of God is not just a feeling, okay? It's not just, you know, a gut thing. It is more than that. It is a relationship with Christ whereby you know the peace of Christ and having his peace helps you to make certain decisions. You know, there are certain phrases that, you know, Christians use. And here's one of the phrases related to what we're talking about. You've heard this. You've probably used it. I've used it. I have a check in my spirit, right? How many of you, you've heard this expression, right? I have a check in my, what you mean by that is I, I have an uneasiness. I don't have a peace about this. You know, there's some, there's some decision that you need to make or some situation and you go, I, I just have a check about this. Well, what that really means is when people say that, what they mean is I don't have a peace about this. And one of the best advices I was ever given and, and I, and I gift, I pass it on to you is, and it's based right here in Colossians 3.15, 
never go against your peace. As a believer, when God gives you his peace and you don't have it concerning a situation, and you know what I'm talking about. You know, some of you know exactly, most of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a certain peace you have about something, and then there's a certain lack of peace. It's a restlessness. It's a little angst. It's like, I don't, I don't, and I can't really put my finger on it either, but I just don't feel quite settled about this. Let me tell you that, that lack of peace, that unsettledness means put the brakes on it. Never go against your peace. God has given it to us as not just a feeling, but as a way that we can make judgment calls like an umpire about certain things in our lives. I don't care how wonderful the opportunity is. I wish I could sit you down with countless people over the 30 years I've been pastoring here at Cornerstone who made decisions against their peace and lived to regret it. If you could hear testimony after testimony after testimony of people, I wish I, I, wish I had it over to do again. Because I went against my peace and going against my peace, it cost me dearly. I don't care how wonderful the opportunity is. I don't care where the opportunity is. I don't care how cool he is or how beautiful she is. If you don't have a peace, don't do it. Don't go against your peace. It's one of the ways that we can hear from God. You see, he may not spell it out completely, but he might just give us the presence of his peace or the absence of it to help us navigate whatever the situation is. It's part of how we hear from him. Learn what that peace is and never go against your peace. The third thing is, this is another important thing. How do we hear God, the confirmation of God's people? Uh, God will often speak through other people to confirm what he is doing in your life. And you know what I have found is that half the time they don't even know that they're doing that. Uh, in fact, God has, you know, don't think it always has to be a brother or sister either. There have been plenty of non-believers that God has used to speak truth into my life, and they didn't even know they were speaking truth. They were saying something that I knew, without having told them anything, was confirmation to me. And it was a, it was a timely word that was spoken. So don't think this has to only be you know, Christians, I, I put up there God's people, but God can use any people uh, to speak and to give direction. I mean, for goodness sakes, in, you know, the story of Balaam, he used a donkey. And so he can, there's plenty of donkeys he can use to talk to you. You know what I'm talking about, right? I go, I work with some of them. Yeah, well, okay. God might use some of those donkey co-workers to speak to you. Like, don't turn a deaf ear to everything and everybody because you don't know. If God's dealing with you about something, see, he'll often use unsuspecting people to say stuff. And you, and you know, though, you're going like, did, did they just read my mail? Do they know what's going on in my life? Because that was a timely word there. Now, a word of caution along these lines, though. I, I hear people, and it troubles me, when I hear people say to me, yeah, so-and-so came up to me and they said, hey, the Lord spoke to them and they told me to do this and now I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, whoa, well, hold on just a minute. Pump the brakes just a minute. Did God tell you that first? Well, no, 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 no. But this is a really d devoted brother or sister. They told me that God said to them to do this and so I'm going to go do it. I said, until God tells you first? What is, what is, what is that? What? Uh, it's, like, it's like you don't have a direct line to God. 
that God has to like tell somebody to tell you to pass it on. I mean, if it's that important, don't you think God's going to tell you first? So when you hear the confirmation from other people, it's that it's confirmation, not direction. Do not ever just take at face value and somebody says, you know, the Lord told me that you should, you know, start dating this person. Really? Or you should, you should move to Pittsburgh, you know, and take that job. Really? Well, has God told you first? Because if God hasn't told you first, you just politely say, well, thank you very much. But until God shows me that, I'm just going to kind of tuck that away. It's a dangerous thing to take direction from people, but it's okay to take confirmation. Because, see, then it's God's, God's way of confirming what he's already said to you. The beautiful example of this is in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's a story about Cornelius, who's this Gentile. The Bible says he's God-fearing, but he doesn't know about Jesus. He's generous. He gives money to the poor. God-fearing guy. But he's, he doesn't know Jesus. There's a lot of God-fearing people who don't know Jesus. Okay, that's Cornelius. Then you have, also in the same chapter, the Apostle Peter. And Peter is in a town called Joppa. And he's hanging out there at a guy's house named Simon the Tanner. And what God does is he sends an angel to speak to Cornelius, who's in Caesarea. Uh, It's a few miles apart. And the angel speaks to Cornelius. Hey, God's heard your prayers. Um... And, and the angel gives instruction to Cornelius, you need to send a couple of your servants to find a guy named Peter at the house of Simon the Tanner in the town of Joppa. He'll explain to you all the rest. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So God was working on that end there with Cornelius. And guess what God was doing with the apostle Peter? He gave Peter this vision, this vision of these, of these unclean animals brought down from, a, from heaven on a sheet, on a bed sheet. And, and Peter has this vision, and, and, and Peter, in this vision, he, God says to him, get up and eat. And Peter looks at it, he goes, well, these are all unclean animals. These are, these are not kosher. I'm a Jew, and uh, God, I've never taken anything. I've never eaten thing that's not kosher. And God says, don't you dare call anything unclean that I've called clean. And what God was trying to help him understand wasn't a food issue. It was the issue that, as a Jew, Peter himself thought that Gentiles were unclean. And God was helping Peter un- to understand, hey, I sent my son Jesus to die for everybody because everybody's unclean. Now, Peter, get up, because in just a few minutes, you're going to have some messengers knocking at your door, and I want you to go with them to the house of one Cornelius. Now, what was God doing there? He was working at both ends. So that when the knock came on the door of Simon the Tanner's house where Peter was staying, Peter didn't answer the door and go, well, who are you? And the guy said, well, an angel sent us and you're supposed to come with us. Oh, okay. God had already prepared Peter. You see, it was just confirmation. When those guys come knocking at the door, Peter was already informed. So he knew, okay, I heard this right. This is confirmation. I'm going to go. And off he went and Cornelius and his household got saved. So my point is, we need to be open to God's confirmation that he speaks to us through other people, again, oftentimes unknowingly, but make sure it's confirmation, not direction, because God can speak to you first. And so it's important that we hear from the Lord, because we have to discern a lot of things in life. Some are major decisions, some are kind of minor decisions. But, you know, all of it is important that we do our best to really discern the will of God. Hear from the Lord. Don't just rely on our five natural senses. 
What is that in that sixth sense? I'm tapping into the Lord. I'm trying to hear his voice. How can I hear from him? Well, we have the counsel of God's word. We have the comfort of God's peace. And we have the confirmation of God's people where he will speak to us through them. Now, look, our time's already escaped us. And I still have to talk about the importance of keeping our word. So I'll save that for next week. But for tonight, let's just ask the Lord to help us with this much in hearing him and discerning his will for our lives. Father, we thank you for the way that you do guide us and direct us. And we need to hear from you. It's a dangerous thing for us just to rely on our senses. We need to hear from you, Lord. And I just feel impressed right now to pause in my prayer and to ask that there are, there are some of you that are really, really needing to hear from the Lord. Maybe some major decision, something that's critical, and you really need the wisdom from the Lord. And I just want to ask you to stand, because we're going to pray for you. To say, yeah, I, I really need to hear from the Lord about something. Just go ahead and stand where you are. We're going to pray for you. Lord, you know what the needs are here. You see your people standing who really need to hear from you. They need to discern your will. They need to know your, your guidance and your leading. And you know the situations. You know what each person is facing. You know where they need clarity. You know where they need discernment. You know where they need understanding. And Father, you also know because you fashioned us from clay that we have a hard time always understanding your direction. Forgive us when we just rely on our five natural senses. We want to seek you. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would impart your wisdom and discernment to those who are needing it the most tonight. The ones who are standing here acknowledging, Lord, they need to hear from you. I pray that you would minister to them through the counsel of your word, that they would go home tonight and start just reading scripture wherever you might lead them, that it would help them to discern your will. I pray also, Lord, that you would help them to discern your will by whether or not they have your peace. And I pray that they would have the courage to never go against their peace. If they don't have peace that you've given them, help them just to pause where they are and not move forward. If you've given them your peace, Lord, then let them know that that's from you. And I pray that you would bring people along their way, whether they're believers or not, Lord, you can speak through other people to confirm what you've already told them. Let it be that extra testimony, even as your word says, let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, Lord, as they wrestle with trying to know what you've told them, it would be a wonderful thing for you to bring a second or a third witness who would just say something that would bring confirmation. So that by one, two, or all three of these methods, they might know clearly your direction. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to all of us when we need to hear you the most. As we seek your face, as we incline our ear, forgive us when we just sample the provisions. And we don't inquire of the Lord. 
We seek you tonight, Lord. We ask you to speak to us. And we trust you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you all.